Welcome to Lighting Your Way, a podcast featuring exciting, hilarious, heartbreaking, terrifying, and joyful stories of real nurse advocates helping real patients get the best health care. Hi, I'm Nurse Betty Long. Each week, I and one of my nurse colleagues at Guardian Nurses will take you behind the curtain to help you better navigate the healthcare system when you or a loved one is sick or injured. Thanks to several listeners who sent in suggestions on what they'd like to hear on this podcast. Today, we talk with three of our Guardian Nurses team, Elizabeth Carpenter, Peggy Pierce, and Rebecca Zarkowski, who among all three have 45 years of emergency room experience. While they don't have just one story to share, we are calling this podcast Emergency Room 101, a primer for patients and families. We invite you to sit back, listen, and hopefully learn something you didn't already know about going to the emergency room. Welcome to the Lighting Your Way podcast, Liz, Peggy, and Rebecca. Thank you uh, for making time to join me today. Liz, you have four years of experience in the ER. Rebecca, you have 10, and our Peg Pierce, with 30 years of experience, you must have been born in the ER. So I have a lot of questions for you, so let's get started. Okay, so let's start with uh, you, Liz. You have four years in the ER, and I think most recently you were in the emergency room during the COVID pandemic, right? Um, but but um, I, I think there's a lot of questions that we could ask. Let's start off with, if you could answer, what's the difference between calling 911 right, and driving yourself to the emergency room. Could you speak to that? Yes. Um, oftentimes, we see, you know, patients um, and or family members drive patients in um, that could have maybe benefited from calling 911. Um, I know most people don't want to call 911, don't think they're sick enough to call 911, um, but once you do elicit emergency services from EMS, there's many benefits. Um, you know, the people, the EMS staff are able to, you know, complete an assessment, provide um, oxygen, do EKGs that actually can be sent to the ER en route where a physician can look at it even before seeing the patient. Um, oftentimes people are having heart attacks or strokes and they drive themselves in and time is very precious. Um, and if they had called 911, some of that care could have been started en route. Right, and, and when folks are calling 911, I think this is a common misconception, is that when they call 911, this is not just a ride to the hospital that they wanna go to, right? That it's, it's, a, it's a ride to the nearest emergency room, correct? It is, and EMS can show up at your doorstep. You can have a conversation with them and you can refuse to get into the ambulance. Um, but it is nice to, to be able to call and have that option and have some trained eyes assess you and help you make that, that choice. Do you get, when you get to the ER, is there any uh, difference in how you are received? Yeah, yes. So ambulance, um, ambulances call ahead. You know, it's answered by a nurse and or staff from the ER um, that then obtain a bay or a bed, um, you know, and a nurse and a doctor and everyone's alerted, usually of what's coming in, how far out it is, 
um, and everyone can just prepare for that patient. That patient does not go out in a waiting area. They um, come right back to the bay. Um, they get triaged and their workup begins by the staff. Right, so it sounds like it, it's more advantageous to call 911 if you were having an, a, an emergent situation that is life-threatening. It is, because when you walk in or pull up or show up, you know, no one's aware of what's going on and they still need to get that story. Um, they still need to look at you, see you, hear you to decide where to put you in the emergency room. Um, Cause there's different areas, usually in larger ERs, there's different areas that treat different conditions. And I think that uh, is what's typically called triage. Uh, I know that we've talked about triage in the warm-up. Um, but there are, as you said, there's different zones, there's different pods, there's different areas. Um, can you explain for our listeners what it means, you know, when they walk into the emergency room, what that process is going to look like? Yes. So there's um, different ways of being triaged in the ER. There's your, you know, standard, you drive in, valet your car, walk to the front window where a trained nurse or technologist takes your information, your history, your um, usually gets a copy of your insurance card and they're either going to decide to bring you right back to the triage area, a workup area in the front that wouldn't be, you know, the, the bed and or stretcher that you're gonna end up in or they'll determine that you can safely wait in the waiting area um, where, you know, you're put into a priority type of standing. Um, there's times when triage is so overwhelmed and or the ER is open enough that patients will be escorted directly back to a bay where oftentimes the nurse that will have that patient can triage them. So there can be a triage team out front, but you can also get taken straight back, you know, and triaged by any nurse. Most ER nurses um, have the skill of triage. And then obviously ambulances are straight back to the bays and that's the third type of triage. Right, okay, so that, that explains triage. Uh, Rebecca, I'm gonna shift over to you now. Um, Liz has talked a little bit about the triage, about waiting, right? And there's different areas, whether it's a pod and different ERs have different ways that they do triage. But can you talk a little bit about what the uh, folks can expect on wait time? Because I know that's, even on uh, Route 76, there's billboards that say the ER wait time is six minutes and uh, seven minutes, <laughs> as though it could be free if you got in under 10. But um, talk a little bit about what, what patients can expect during that wait time when they come in and, and present to the ER first. So that can be uh, the most frustrating thing for not just the patients and their loved ones, but also for the staff. So when somebody comes through triage, like Liz was referring, they, we do assess for, acute, for how uh, quickly you need immediate hands on deck. So you can be pulled right from triage back to a room, but more times than not, patients are stable and we can begin the workup out in the triage area. And it becomes a misconception, uh, I guess, from a patient perspective. When you're looking, you come in, you sit down, you've been waiting an hour and a half, and somebody who came in 45 minutes ago is escorted to the back. Right. So 
like Liz was saying, you've got to consider there's different levels of care that's being provided. There's a fast track in out, like lacerations, breaks, casting x-rays. You don't know what somebody else is there with. Right. So you have to appreciate that just because they're going back first does not mean that they anybody's forgotten you. It means that there's a level of care available for that patient that's appropriate. The other piece is in most triage settings across the country, we start a workup out in the triage area. So if you come in with a complaint, there are protocols so that care isn't delayed and it isn't unsafe. That does not mean that you're gonna get back faster, but it also means that we're looking for the differential or the diagnosis or what the problem is, even while you're waiting in the waiting room. So a good piece of uh, recommendation would be after you've, uh, blood has been drawn, EKG done, vital signs done, after you've been out there for an hour and a half, it's okay to go up and ask if any results have come back. It's okay, I encourage it, go up and ask them to recheck your vital signs because mm -hmm. you don't want anyone to forget about you and it can feel like they are when yes. you're in the waiting room. Yes, that, that's one thing that I think piece of, piece of feedback that we get all the time is that patients feel like, you know, they see other people going in and they're still waiting. Yeah. Right. So I think that's important. If, it, if it's less urgent, there might be a, um, a bed available m more quickly than there would be for something more mm -hmm. serious. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a um, oxymoron. Right? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Um, Peg, thank you, Rebecca. Peg, I want to uh, shoot a question over to you. So who can I expect? So I've, I'm in triage, I've been seen, and then I get back to a room. Who can I expect to be seen by when I'm being evaluated? Is it uh, an ER physician? Is it a nurse practitioner? Who are the personnel in the ER? Yeah, good question, Betty. Uh, I've, I've worked in three different ERs, and I can tell you it varies from ER to ER. Um, but most likely when you're just brand new, put in that bed, the first person that's going to see you most likely is going to be your nurse. Um, now, some places could have it that the med tech comes in and gets you into a gown and maybe, you know, gets you kind of settled for the nurse. But usually it's the RN that comes in to see you first. Um, and after that, it's going to be um, either the ER physician or some sort of mid-level provider. It could be a nurse practitioner. It could be a physician's assistant. Um, or you might get a resident, you know, um, and, and also it could be the doctor. Most places they send a mid-level or a resident in first um, and gets the workup started, you know, does your assessment and then reports to the doctor and then the doctor comes in. But it really all depends. If you're in, a, in an academic setting, um, that's most likely how it's gonna go. If you're out in the community and, you know, someplace that's far away from an academic setter, setting, um, it, it may be the doctor that comes in to see you next. And, and when that doctor comes in, um, is there anything in particular that I should ask as a patient? Like, should I ask, you know, hi, doctor, who are you? And what's the game plan? Or what am I here for? Like, what, should I do anything as the patient? Should I? Sure. Uh, you know, it, it really all depends. A lot of places when you come in for a certain, with a certain symptom, uh, there is, uh, you know, a, a thing that they can get started where they get certain bloods or an x-ray uh, and get that stuff started. So when the doctor comes in and explains, you know, oh, this is what we have, this is what we see so far. Um, a good question to ask the doctor would be, you know, is there anything else that needs to be tested? Did we cover everything? You know, what's the game plan? Am I going to be admitted? 
you know, do I need medications, you know, pretty much the whole umbrella of what's going to happen to me while I'm here. Yeah, well, one of the things that we see all the time at Guardian Nurses is that communication is an issue, uh, no matter whether it's in the emergency room or on the floor or in your doctor's office, right? So that's why I wanted to encourage people to be proactive uh, and make the ER staff communicate. As Rebecca said, if, if they're feeling like somebody forgot about you, to go back to the uh, triage nurse uh, and ask. And there's also, um, also if there is uh, a need to maybe escalate or if you're feeling a little like you've lost your nurse <laughs> or maybe you've lost your doctor and you're feeling like nobody's paying attention, who, Peg, uh, could a patient or a family, if family is with them, who could they ask for? Sure. Uh, ideally, the first person that you would be able to take your concern to would be your primary nurse. But if he or she is not available because you've lost them, the next person that I would ask for would be the charge nurse. Every Everybody has them. Every shift, every unit has somebody who's in charge of the unit that day. Um, and if the charge nurse is not available, then you can go right to the nursing supervisor or the nurse manager. Nurse managers leave at a certain time. So if it's during the day, you know, up till about 4 or 5 p.m., the nurse manager would be a good one to call. But if not, the next step would be the nursing supervisor who runs the whole house. And depending on how big the hospital is, there's one or more, but that would be the, the next step to take it if you can't get anybody who is based in the ER. Okay, great. Thanks, Peg. Liz, I want to shift over to you. We've, we've talked a lot. I mentioned a little bit about COVID in the beginning, uh, but certainly uh, COVID has impacted all of our healthcare operations this year uh, and certainly has affected the impact of, of families being able to interact with, with their loved ones uh, to the point of Really, I've heard many stories of families just driving up to the emergency room and dropping off their loved one uh, and waiting in the parking lot. So uh, in your recent experience, um, how has COVID affected emergency room visits? Um, COVID affected it greatly. Um, you know, basically anyone that wasn't being treated was not allowed in. So it was the patient and staff. Um, which at times can make it very difficult. Um, if yeah. patients were very sick, um, we were spending a lot of time on the phone eliciting, and this was more last spring during the hot time of COVID. For me, I got pulled back to the emergency room and you know, we had to be on phones and iPads and you know, it was difficult for everyone. It was difficult for the patient in the bed. It was difficult for staff, um, just getting information, getting history. Um, you know, sometimes people are disoriented or they're so sick, they, they can't share their history or they're confused. Um, we also had a lot of nursing home um, population that ended up coming into our emergency room, you know, that needed to be intubated, that, you know, couldn't make decisions on their own and we'd have to call family to get the okay to intubate. It was, it was unreal and scary and awful for everyone. Um, but, you know, the teams all pulled together and I wasn't working in the ER at the time, but, you know, volunteered to go back down to help other ER nurses that I had been with. Um, and it was, you know, we all pulled together, they all pulled together, but it, it was like nothing we've experienced. Right. Oh, I, I've, <laughs> that's, that's the, the, the least that you could say, right? Nothing you've yeah. experienced. It's, it was certainly a, a compelling year for uh, nursing and for healthcare. So do you see it 
uh, more recently opening up? Has the, have the ERs, have, have Rebecca, Peggy, uh, Liz, have, have the ERs begun to open up? Are there visitors allowed? Now? I feel that it's ER to ER and healthcare system to healthcare system that yeah. it's either let end or if a patient is hospice or you know near death, um, I think pregnancy, although they get shipped right up to labor and delivery, um, it seems my most recent experience was that family was not allowed back. Um, and I had to go through talking to the attending to get a family member to be able to sit with someone in a crisis situation. Wow. I did not want that crisis individual making decisions on his own. Right. Bring up a safety concern in order to get his dad to just be able to sit with him. So I, I don't think they're open, open. You know, I think it's, I think it's as, as needed per patient per story. Per patient. Right. So to Peg's point, like, so if I presented to the emergency room and had a dependent or someone who I needed to be with, is, can that be communicated to the triage nurse? It can be, although I think family members are overwhelmed and often, you know, don't want to anger or, you know, make them mad. So I think they retreat and sometimes go and like you said, sit in the parking lot. But I think if you have an individual that, and or family member that cannot make decisions or interact with the doctor or nurse, or it, it's just, it, it wouldn't even be smart for the staff not to bring that family member back. Yeah, and it feels like at a minimum, we should be able to do that, right? Like, you know, I think I at this stage, yes, yes. yeah. Um, Peg, Rebecca, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I, I can add to that. So I think I, I agree with Liz that in general, it's slow going and it can vary from facility to facility. Um, but I can say on a personal level, I have a special needs son who did need to go to the ER for something minor, but still needed to go to the ER. And he did, they, they did let somebody come back with him because it just really wouldn't have been <laughs> successful if they didn't. But I think it's uh, based, you know, it's case by case and really, you know, depending on what the patient needs, you know, they'll, they'll let the person come back if it's really needed. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I would hope that this is, we're recording this in June and uh, June, 2021, and it feels like the world should be opening up a bit yeah. and that we should be able to get back to, I don't want to say normal, but people come to the ER with their loved one, right. Who wait with them in the pod in the room in the bay. And that should be yeah. kind of the normal. Um, all right, Rebecca, I'm going to switch over to you. Now, this is a hot topic because the opioid epidemic still rages in our country. Uh, and I know that a lot of adjustments have been made to physicians prescribing medications, particularly from the ER or post-surgery. Um, but really, uh, talk a little bit about how the expectations uh, of getting pain meds has, has changed in the ER. How, how have doctors kind of adjusted? Yeah, this has been difficult for a number of years and continues to be. You know, everybody has to do their part, including healthcare, who probably was the largest contributor to the to the problem initially. So it used to be, you know, ER physicians and PAs and MPs would write for a liberal amount of pain medication to get you through with consideration to how long it would be before you could follow up if they had to give any pain meds at all. And that definitely has changed. Traditionally now, if pain medi narcotic pain medication is necessary, they will give you just enough to get you to the point three to five days to follow up 
with a provider that can actually continue and follow care and, and do the full workup to see, uh, see how to manage the care. So what does that mean for the patients? You know, a lot of times patients, it's very frustrating. If you're making a trip to the ER, you're paying the copay, you're in pain, and then to hear, we're going to send you home, take Tylenol, take Motrin, and you're thinking, I could have just done that and did not need to come in here and give you, you know, however many hundreds of dollars for a copay. Understanding that this epidemic, nobody wants to bear the responsibility for someone, for losing someone or someone becoming an addict or codependent. And so because of that, there had to be some control, especially in the emergency department, where it's very difficult to track patients from one ER to the next ER. Okay. Um, oftentimes, you know, we have all, we have said over the years there should be some kind of a, a universal messaging system yeah, so that you can prevent right. Right. Um, over prescribing medication without even knowing you're doing it, and it continues to be something that is an issue in ER and throughout healthcare altogether. So what I think the lesson for, for anyone listening is you don't, don't go in there looking for just the medication to band-aid the issue. You're going there to get worked up to make sure there's nothing life-threatening. And if you can deem that you're safe to leave, as, as awful as it is, you, you need to trust that they're doing it for, their, for your best interest, not not to be mean or difficult. Right. That's a good, that's a good distinction, right? Mm -hmm. It's a life threatening. We yes. want to make sure you're stable, right? It's not the ER. What's the saying that the ER nurses say? It's we're not, uh -oh. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe none of you want to admit that in public. <laughs> okay. never mind. Forget that question. <laughs> um, Peg, let me, um, Rebecca mentioned something about leaving, right? So let's talk about leaving uh, the emergency room against medical advice, which is often referred to as leaving AMA. Um, some people don't want to wait, right? Some people are tired and they just go home. We, we had a patient last week who didn't want to wait in one ER and the next day she presented to another. Uh, so talk about against medical advice. You know, how is that documented? How is it explained? Like, obviously there's risks, right? So I, what are the risks? There's a lot of questions I have, but, but talk to me about when patients sign out AMA. Sure. I've had many patients sign out AMA <laughs> over the three <laughs> decades I worked in the ER. Um, you know, and sometimes it's unfortunate because you really want them to stay and you're, you're genuinely concerned about them and you, you plead with them, please just consider staying. But when they do decide they do want to leave against medical advice, it's when the doctor wants to keep you, you know, for whatever it is. They want to keep you overnight or they want to keep you longer in the ER and they want to keep, you know, working you up or getting you admitted and the patient just says, no, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Um, there is a form. It's the AMA form, the Against Medical Advice form, form and you, uh, the doctor will fill out um, the risks that are involved with leaving, you know, and, and sometimes it's, or most times I would say death is one of them, you know, that, you know, once you leave here, you know, we're not at that's significant. Yes, you know, and really, and uh, and all the other risks that, that could happen. And you know, once you, pretty much the paper says that once you sign this paper and you leave this ER, we're not at fault if any of these things should happen to you. And it's most often uh, presented to the to the patient uh, by the nurse, by the ER nurse, and then the nurse will witness the signature. And you know, unfortunately, um, then they'll leave after they sign that form. 
So, are, so they, they have to sign the form. If they don't sign a form and like, you know, you said you've had a lot of patients leave. Like, what if you go back to the room and they're not there? <laughs> oh, that happens a lot too. <laughs> uh, that's when the patient gets what they want out of that stay, but you're not done with them. And it's called elopement. And you just go back to the room and you find them missing. They're not there. Oh. And the gown is, the gown not is, the romantic elopement, I'm assuming. <laughs> I'm sorry? Not the romantic elopement. Not, not, not even close. Yeah. <laughs> You, you find the remnants of their patient and they're not there and you just put that in your charting, you know, the patient eloped. Okay. Uh, and then um, there, I know that there's been some discussion about whether that, you know, insurance, I know that I, when, when patients wanted to sign out AMA when the floor, it was always, well, we don't know if the insurance company, they reserve the right to not pay. That was always kind of the, the caveat that we gave patients when they had been admitted and they wanted to sign out. So do you, do you guys uh, ever talk about that to patients? Yeah, and I've heard it a lot. You know, you know, if you leave, your insurance might not cover this ER stay, and that's not true. They're going to cover it as an ER visit, and okay. it it's usually, you know, I think either it's used that, that maybe the the person saying that doesn't know, or maybe okay. they really just want to try to, you know, have that yeah think about things a little bit. Well, it's the big band insurance company. So, you know, mm -hmm. nobody wants to get a $15,000 bill. So um, if that's the compelling reason that you stay, then so be it. Right? Um, so Rebecca, I, I just, be, we have a couple more questions, but I wanted to uh, talk to you about one of the things that I think patients and, and listeners need to understand is that when you go to the ER and you present and Liz talked about triage and Peg talked about it, it's, you're going into a, de a department in the hospital. And that hospital has critical care units, it has operating rooms, it has a lot of other patients that are being cared for, and therefore the lab, the radiology, all the supporting units that are supporting the patients that are inpatient are actively working to support those inpatients. And therefore, the emergency room often is at the... I don't want to say back and call, but at the, you know, you're the the, mercy of available. at the mercy of available mm -hmm. equipment, right? So patients need to know that it's not that you're neglecting them or that, you know, you're waiting for their lab results. You're waiting for the x-ray or you're waiting for the CAT scan, you know, for the cameras being used for someone else. Mm -hmm. Can you, can you talk a little yeah. bit about the flow and even in terms of bed availability upstairs? That's the, I was going to speak to that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The ER is absolutely dependent, it has no control, right? You don't have control when people are going to be discharged on the floors. You don't have control of when an ambulance is gonna come through the door and you have no control over who's coming through the front door and how, what level of acuity there are, right? right? You're, right. You could get how many gunshot wounds in a night, right? right. You have absolutely, and drop at your front door. Right. So fortunately for the, Patients, ER nurses and doctors and other staff is very well managed to handle that kind of chaos. It's like organized chaos. Okay, I've heard that before. A little bit, organized right? <laughs> <laughs> so I use, one of the things that I used to do with my patients is just communicate with them, right? If you let them know why there's a delay or why things are slow. Hey, look, there's no beds in the hospital. We're going to hold you tonight. I'm going to get you a bed. You won't sleep on the stretcher. We'll try and be quiet. 
but you'll be safe. Okay. Always go back to why they're there. They're not there for a hotel stay. They're there for a, a need, right? A medical need. Um, Communication is going to be your best friend. The more you let the patient and their family know what's going on and honesty, you know, will they be happy about it? No, but will they, can they fault you if they know why? Hopefully not. <laughs> well, don't be so sure. <laughs> don't be so sure. Okay, so uh, ladies, I have two more questions before we close, and I appreciate all of your uh, insight into this, but here's the question. I'm going to go around. Liz, I'm going to start with you. Um, what kind of things uh, should a patient bring to the emergency room, right? I'm packing up. I need to go. This is not maybe, well, maybe it is 911. Maybe it's not, but I'm coming and I have to go to the ER. What, what, those the first thing I should grab? Uh, either your medication list, or if you don't have one, throw them in a bag and it can be any bag and bring them with you because then you will get prescribed and given, you know, your correct medication. Okay, great. How about you? I would have you bring uh, on a piece of paper or on a card, hopefully it's in your wallet at all times, uh, your medical history and the name of your doctors that take care of you. Very good. And, and that, just a little plug for, for our listeners to make sure that you do put your doctor's names and your medical history on a little either three by five card, depending on how extensive your medical history is. Uh, but just keep that handy just so that you can, as Peg said, convey to the next practitioner. All right, Rebecca, no pressure. What, what's the first thing you're gonna grab or you suggest people grab? So the first thing I would grab is my charger and a block. Oh, because- okay. Is that a phone charger? A phone charger, phone yes. Charger. And, and the block for the wall because what you really need to bring is patience. <laughs> and, and that's spelled P-A-T-I-E-N-C-E. Correct. Patience. Okay. Right. Got so it. I think if you walk in knowing full well, you're lucky if you get out in less than eight hours, then you have nothing to be really to your expectations aren't realistic. So bring your charger because you'll need it and understand that everybody's working as fast as they can. I mean, everybody wants to right. be as safe as they can and they're hustling and doing the best they can. So you just have to be patient. Yeah. And all the times I've visited an ER, both as a professional and as a patient, I've never seen people sitting around doing nothing. nothing. Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> so it's eating not like bonbons. eating bonbons. Okay. All right. Next, the next question for all of you. Um, and Liz, you're up again. So here's the uh, $64,000 question. What one piece of advice would you suggest to patients uh, that are listening? as it relates to an emergency room piece of advice and i can recommend um your average wait time is six hours and if you get out before congratulations <laughs> okay thank you yeah. thank you liz that's uh <laughs> right it, it's like reminds me of the southwest airlines when they remind you that they have come uh, they've arrived early and that everybody claps yeah so i guess if you yes. get in more than in, in closer than six hours you should be you know, yeah, playing the lottery. Mean, not wait time, but processing time from triage to diagnosis. Great. Okay. Perfect. Peg, how about you? What one piece of advice would you suggest? I would, I would say get to know the ER around you, right? The ERs around you. If you live in a community that's far out there and you have one ER, 
that's where you're going to go. If you live in an urban setting and you have many, many academic universities near you, pretty much you're gonna get the same care no matter where you go. But if you kind of live like in the middle of those two types of settings in a, in a suburban setting, um, you might have more than one community hospital to choose from. And, and I would say get to know which one because not all of them have the money or the resources to be, you know, to have every, every kind of service, you know, imaginable. One might have uh, a cath lab, the one next door might not. One might be, you know, certified stroke center and the other one might not. You know, sometimes these community hospitals are kind of in cahoots, like, hey, listen, you do the cath lab and we'll do the stroke center. So I think it's a good idea to know um, what you have around you and who specializes in what. That's a great suggestion. So Rebecca, you're our last contestant uh, here. So what one piece of advice would you like to give our listeners as it relates to the emergency room? To communicate, to share, be honest with your nurse and your physician. They're not judging you. They've seen everything and they can help you best if you're completely honest with them about your symptoms, recalling the events, and uh, speaking candidly about your lifestyle if it's impacting your healthcare. Wow, well, I, that's a great suggestion to end on. Um, Liz, Peg, Rebecca, thank you all uh, for, for giving us your expertise. Uh, I hope that I never see an ER in my <laughs> lifetime, uh, but thank you again and uh, take care. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you. If you have any questions that you would like us to address in a future episode, please email us at podcast at guardiannurses.com. That email again is podcast at guardiannurses.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us this week. You can find the Lighting Your Way podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. You can learn all about Guardian Nurses Healthcare Advocates on our website, guardiannurses.com. So until next time, find some joy in your life, pet all the good doggies and kitties, and remember to tell your people that you love them. Take care.